Please turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We'll focus our attention this morning and for the next seven years. I don't know. I don't do good with sermon planning. But one of my favorite theologians, R.C. Sproul, one time in a Q&A, he was asked a question that I thought was interesting. They asked him, if you could only have one book for the rest of your life and you were thrown in jail, what would it be? He gave kind of a boring answer because he's a theologian. He chose the Bible. But then they asked him a follow-up. Well, just one book out of the Bible. It's all you get. For the rest of your life, you're in jail. One book of the Bible. And I remember watching this online. I thought, Isaiah. Maybe Romans. Maybe the Gospel of John. R.C. Sproul said, Hebrews. Hebrews? Hebrews. It's a book that's not a book. It's a letter that's not a letter. It's a sermon that ends like a letter. It's an anonymous word of exhortation to a nameless congregation. Hebrews. It's a letter slash sermon slash Jewish midrash type explanation and exegesis of how a proper understanding of the Son of God is all we need in this life. Why? Because Jesus is better. Better than what? Yes. Better than everything. He's a better prophet. He's a better priest, better sacrifice. He's better than the angels. Jesus is simply better. Esteemed Hebrews scholar William Lane, who took something like 14 or 15 years to write a two-volume commentary that I am growing to love. He says at the beginning of his commentary that Hebrews is a delight. Wait, he says Hebrews is a delight for the person who enjoys a puzzle. That's what he says. Many throughout the ages of church history have treated Hebrews like a puzzle that was a level above their ability. You know, they dump it out on the table and they find the corner pieces and they find the edges and they get that all put together and then they start to kind of get colors that match and put those in piles and they may come across a few that fit together but pretty shortly they realize they're not ready for this. That's kind of how a lot of people approach Hebrews. It seems too unfamiliar and it's like somebody took the box of our puzzle and threw it away so we're not even really sure what we're aiming at so we just kind of hit the high points of a few different places in the book and talk about the final reality of revelation and the searching nature of God's word talk about the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice we occasionally mention the warnings uh, that everyone hopes nobody asks the question about their intent and we really don't know and then we go to chapter 11 and we talk about the wonderful example of God's people And we pluck them out of context, not sure why the author's talking about them. And then we get to chapter 12 and remind ourselves that life is like a marathon and running is not, in fact, a sin, although I think it should be. And then every once in a while, we're reminded from chapter 13, we're supposed to submit to church leaders. And that's Hebrews to many mature Christians. But I think Hebrews is a little more than that. It's like calling a well-seared ribeye steak perfectly done at 120 degrees with a beautiful Maillard reaction all over it, a piece of cooked meat. 
Hebrews is an inexhaustible treasure of the beauty and glory and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Are there challenges in Hebrews? Absolutely. Was I second-guessing myself from Tuesday to this morning for choosing to preach the book of Hebrews? Yes, absolutely. Is this going to be a life-changing, worship-producing, glory-magnifying study? If you put the work in, you're going to be amazed by Christ. But how can we be certain to learn from and delight in and grow when we're studying a book with an uncertain authorship? How can we be certain uh, to learn from a book with a traditionally divided purpose? How can we connect with a book where tradition is divided on even who the recipients are? Hebrews. Hebrews? Hebrews. When we take this word of exhortation, as the author himself calls it, which is an ancient way to label a homily or a sermon. And when we digest this word of exhortation, we find this sermon is rooted in the real-life struggles of a, of a church of men and women who needed help and needed encouragement, and they needed warning, and they needed exhortation. This sermon cuts like a knife through the hopelessness of difficult circumstances, and it patches together the weary and tattered faith of beleaguered Christians and fatigued Christians. And because it's a sermon, it's, it's welded to these real-life issues that were coming up in the lives of the recipients, the common problems and normal struggles that you find were present in the first century just so happened to be present even today. Because of the love of this preacher for his people, we find this sermon throbbing with passion and wisdom and theology and application that helps the people remember who God is. The sermon is seeking to help these believers trust in what God has done and to believe on him in the present for the future because of what he's done in the past. And the preacher is sensitive to the struggles of these people. He knows these people, he loves these people, and he knows they've been through a great difficulty before, and he sees on the horizon a great difficulty is coming. And so while we get our feet wet with this book today, we see a pastor preparing his people for another struggle, seeking to strengthen them in the face of a new crisis by calling them to greater faithfulness to Christ. He says to these people, look, I know you've been through it, and I know we all look to the future and see it, whatever it may be, is coming again, but your only hope is to hold fast to Christ, because Christ is holding fast to you, and he doesn't just command them and guilt them into a greater faithfulness and a greater commitment to the Lord. The preacher unfolds the glory of Christ, and he sets Christ against so many good things to show how Jesus is always better. And when we know that Jesus is better than anything else, we can imagine because he's God's son, we believe that he's better than anybody says they are. We believe that he's the perfect prophet whose revelation never fails. He's the perfect priest whose invitation into the presence of God never disappoints. He's the perfect king whose reign will never end because Jesus is always better. So let go of the false hopes that you hold on to. Rid yourself of your commitments to your puny, earthly, temporary stuff and enjoy the future that Christ has promised. Find in a full-orbed understanding that Jesus is better and your commitment can only be to him 
Find in him and that commitment you have everything on this earth you could ever need. But there are ambiguities in the letter to the Hebrews. There's a few of them surrounding this glorious book. But don't let the question marks about Hebrews over the shadow, overshadow the periods within Hebrews. From the very beginning, we see this letter is about what God has said. The preacher does what preachers should do. What you need is what God has said. You don't need someone to understand you. You don't need someone to relate to you. You don't need someone to deliver you. You don't need someone to hear you. You don't need someone to serve you. You need to hear what God has said, and the preacher says that God has spoken. So as we jump into this study today, stand with me and hear of the Son of whom God has spoken. We'll read Hebrews chapter 1 together. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Hebrews chapter one, let's pray. Our Father, how quickly the book of Hebrews gets to our heart. We see you have spoken and you have spoken finally and fully in your Son. In Jesus, we see all the glory that our eyes can handle. In Jesus, we find all the power that our needs demand. In Jesus, we feel and see and marvel at the beauty of salvation and the glory of your love. We find a Savior who's above every 
created thing because he is in fact creator. Whether this earth or the angels or spirits or people, Jesus is above and Jesus is better and Jesus is also our savior. So Father, I pray that you'll help us this morning as we look at the big picture of this book. Help us to not get lost in the things that we don't know, but to recognize the beauty of what you've spoken to us by your Son. It's in his name that we pray for your glory. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And look again how this letter begins. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2a. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. What an opening line. From the beginning of this book, we see this book is not normal. The opening paragraph of Hebrews is unparalleled in the Bible for style, rhetoric, expression. These are not the words of an amateur. These are the words of a seasoned communicator, a skilled orator, a passionate worshiper. But what's his name? We see God has spoken, but who here is speaking for him? I don't know that there's a question with more debate that's legitimate in theology than who wrote the book of Hebrews. This will be the first question we ask as we seek to understand the book of Hebrews this morning. Who's it by? The authorship of Hebrews has been debated throughout church history. So we're not going to solve it this morning, just in case you were wondering. There have been, according to Herbert W. Bateman IV. I mean, if you got a name like Herbert W. Bateman IV, you got to be trustworthy. He says there's no less than 19 candidates for the author of Hebrews. Ordinarily, there are few candidates that rise to the top of every generation's scholarship. Names like Apollos, who was famously supported by Luther. You don't like Apollos, that's okay. Or Luke, or Jude, or Paphras. Or maybe Barnabas, promoted by Tertullian. Or Priscilla and Aquila, who've had their proponents throughout the ages. Or Priscilla and Aquila. Often these names can be found with a new proponent in every cycle of the church's academic efforts on behalf of understanding Hebrews. One that's extremely common, and I agree with, with a few caveats, is Paul. There's no argument for authorship that does not come with obvious disadvantages or areas that we cannot prove. Otherwise, we would know who wrote the book. But if there were an obvious author, the debate would have been settled ages ago. But Paul's likelihood as author and the support of the majority of church history helps in viewing Paul as a likely author. There are two main things that those who say Paul didn't write the letter point to to negate Pauline Authorship. First, they point to the very Hellenistic style of the letter. We don't feel Hellenism. That's not something that we're, you know, that we're understanding. But Hellenistic in style means that whoever wrote the letter was a Jew who was very versed in Greek culture and adopted to some extent the Greek way of life. 
they maintained the Jewish faith, and yet they were comfortable, as long as they weren't in sin, to be a part of the Greek culture. What we know of Paul in his autobiographical sketch would tell us that Paul was not a Hellenist. Instead, he was a what? A Hebrew of Hebrews. He doesn't present himself as a Hellenist, at least. And the second main reason people often discount Paul as author is in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. There's an ambiguous statement that seems to say that the author wasn't an eyewitness to Christ. And yet, multiple times in Paul's ministry, he claims his apostolic authority is a result of his personal witness of the resurrected Christ. So suffice it to say, most of church history hasn't found those anti-Pauline arguments sufficient to eliminate his likely authorship. Many believe in addition to Paul's authorship of the word of exhortation, remember that's how the letter is labeled in chapter 13, verse 22, that is likely a sermon that was preached by Paul, because this is just how life worked back in these days. It was likely a sermon preached by Paul and recorded by a true Hellenist, someone perhaps like Luke. Others suggest Timothy. Before you find that a stretch, remember how we got Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel was, in fact, Peter's eyewitness compiled by Mark. Peter preached Christ. Mark remembered it. Mark wrote it down. This is common in the days of Christ and Peter and Paul sans YouTube. And since the mind was trained to remember things, some scholars suggest that the average Average, normal, uneducated, common, simple mind could remember verbatim an hour's worth of material. That may seem outlandish to our Twitter feed-saturated society, but if you forgot something in the first century, you forgot something. You couldn't Google it and have it remember for you. It was gone. And so you remembered things. We know from Josephus and other historians that the Roman Empire employed runners who would listen to the message of one Roman authority, hear it, digest it, ask questions if they needed to, and then run for days to the other Roman authority awaiting their message and then spit out the message verbatim to the other Roman authority. You say, well, how do we know they could do that? Because if they didn't, they got themselves dead. You didn't make mistakes if you were a Roman runner. So the feasibility of someone as educated as Luke, remember the doctor, and the Gentile, possibly even more probably the Hellenized Jew, Luke, being the penman for Paul, at least to me, in my simple mind, makes perfect sense. But the most compelling reason I'd suggest Paul, for sure, and Paul and Luke, or Paul and Timothy as a possibility as the preacher and the writer of Hebrews, is where antiquity put the letter of Hebrews when they would compile Scripture. For example, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus, and many other places, Hebrews is placed in the Pauline epistle section of those codexes. So the Pauline letter corpus of the New Testament would house Hebrews. Meaning what? They all thought Paul wrote Hebrews. It wasn't until people outsmarted the early testimonies of the church that Paul's authorship came into question. 
There's the internal testimony of inspiration that's unambiguous that we should likely focus most of our intention upon. There's ambiguity and disagreement on who exactly was the author and how the letter was written, where it came from, even who it went to, but there's no confusion that this is the divine word of God. And so while I'm operating under the assumption that Paul preached a message and Luke wrote it down, that doesn't affect our interpretation of the truth we find here. This is a masterfully composed, creatively crafted display of sermonic excellence, theological eloquence, and exegetical precision. This is all you want in a sermon. And I'm a little scared to study it because you're going to think I should learn to preach like this, but this letter is amazing. 18% of this book, plus or minus, is direct scripture quotation from the Greek Old Testament. That's good preaching. You want to make your preaching better? Read more of the Bible when you're preaching. Quote it. That 18% doesn't account for the equally significant number of allusions and mentions of Old Testament ideas that the author points to. The preacher drew from the Pentateuch, the historical narrative books, the prophets and the poets God had given his people. The preacher took God's word and applied it to daily life of God's people for the glory of God and the good of God's people. So don't forget when we consider the preacher that we must surrender to the truth that the content of this letter was preached by a pastor who loved his people and he knew his people just as he loved and knew God's word that he gave his people. So the preacher, I'm just gonna call him the preacher. That way if you're crazy and you think Barnabas wrote it, I won't offend you every time I say the preacher, but I will fight you on the fact that this is a sermon because that's what the preacher calls it at the end is a sermon. So anyway, I'll call him the preacher. The preacher has detailed, experiential knowledge of his people. Turn to the end of chapter 10. The end of chapter 10, you see where the preacher's coming from with these people. Chapter 10, verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This is not a theological treatise to people who need a new truth. This is a pastor holding the cheeks of his people in his hands and directing them to look to the beauty of Christ to help them and serve them in the midst of their struggles. And his message is very simple. His message is very clear. From the beginning of the book of Hebrews to the end, the message is Jesus is better. So how do we understand the book of Hebrews? It was a sermon by a preacher to the people that he pastored and he loved. But who were his people? Well, that's another great question with a nearly identical mystery. So we'll start with what we know, or at least with what we think we know. If we piece together certain clues through the letter, it seems that though this letter was written to a congregation, a house church, if you will, which would have been somewhere in the 15 to 30 adults range who were well known by the preacher and knew him well also. Very likely they were in an urban setting, a metropolis of sorts because of how we see this church directed to connect with other churches, which wasn't what 
people did if they were in rural farming areas because there was no other assemblies. They were on their own. Some of these postulations you'll have to trust me on until they're proven as we plow our way through the text, but their location, or I would say their city, is purposefully obfuscated in the second to last verse of the letter. If you look at the end of chapter 13, there's a broad, strange designation to Italy. Most interpret the author's intent as to send greetings from those who used to be with them back to them, and the where is labeled Italy. But as you read the sermon, the nation of Italy is not the recipient. It's this group of people. There was a single urban congregation in mind. There's too many directed dresses to certain people with specific issues for this to be for a whole nation. This is not like the book that is from Peter to all the churches in Asia Minor. This is not one of those. This is to a direct group of people, some sort of a house church. It's a reasonable question of to where that finds its answer more in the adverse circumstances of the recipients to understand where. As we already saw in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 to 34, they suffered in the past for Christ and expected to do the same in the future. And you could really think about most churches in the ancient world, especially in the first century, and that would describe them. They had suffered in the past, and they were going to suffer in the future. But this by itself doesn't help us. But as we kind of work our way around this letter and pull out different details from it and work off the postulation that it's at least Italy, we can point to most likely Rome. Rome was founded, according to legend, in 753 B.C. when Romulus placed a small settlement on the Tiber River. If you remember, Israel at that point, when Rome was founded, was receiving her chastisement from Amos and being called back to Yahweh. She didn't listen. Israel refused, and the exile of the northern kingdoms happened in 733 and followed by the southern kingdom's exile in 586 to Assyria and Babylon, respectively. After these exiles, many Jews found themselves where? in slavery in Rome or going to Rome because of trading opportunities on their own or going back to Jerusalem impoverished. In addition, when Roman leader Pompey subdued Judea 63 years before Christ, he took a host of slaves back to Rome to serve his family and the empire. There was a healthy population of Jews in Rome. Why does that matter? Well, that's one of the pieces of the puzzle. If you're going to have Hellenized Jews, Christians receiving this letter, they had to come from the Jewish faith at some point. Josephus tells us Jews in the first century Rome were around 8,000 strong and covered the categories of free, enslaved, and even Roman citizens. We know from Acts chapter 2 that there were many Jews in Rome who came to Jerusalem on regular intervals to participate in feasts and pilgrimages outlined in the Old Testament. That's, in fact, how Christianity got its beginning in Rome. Jews from Rome were in Jerusalem. Jews heard Peter preach at Pentecost and were convinced by grace through faith that the long-awaited Messiah had come. And they went back to Rome and they told their synagogues, Hey, some dude named Jesus rose from the dead. He's, in fact, the Messiah. We should worship him. 
And what happened there? Some were converted to following Christ the Messiah. Others revolted at the idea and rejected the newly minted Christian bodies in Rome. To the Roman government, for the decade or so after Christ, maybe even up to 20 years or so, Christians were just viewed pretty much as a sect of Judaism. This is why there were issues, there were issues, this is why when there were issues with the Jews in Rome, for example, in 49 AD, Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome, maybe you remember that a long time ago in a world history class, causing them to forfeit their property and lose their wealth, who was expelled along with the Christians? Or who was expelled along with the Jews? The Christians, because Rome viewed them as a sect of Judaism. But God used this in a mighty way in the life of the Roman church because he took those Roman Hellenized Christian Jews and he sent them places like Corinth. Priscilla and Aquila were expelled from Rome in 49 AD and subsequently spent time encouraging Paul's body of believers and their work in Corinth. And as we study through this book, you'll find these Christians in Rome scared by past persecutions, which could line up with the 49 AD expelling by Claudius, and worried about a future persecution, one that seems certain on the horizon. What the future persecution was has a lot to do with who Caesar was when this letter was written somewhere between 62 and 64 AD. Because the preacher seems to intimate that martyrdom had not become the norm for Christians in Rome yet. The letter must have been written towards the beginning of Nero's insane persecution of Christians. There was another major factor that caused Christians in Rome and Jews to be persecuted in Rome, and that was the disastrous climate of their homeland. Judea in the 60s AD was a disaster of politics, religion, greed, and debauchery. You remember from reading the book of Acts, Felix and Festus, they were Roman procurators, governors. They were both immoral and ineffective at keeping the peace without disastrous violence. Well, who followed them but Albinus from 62 to 64 and Florus from 64 to 66, and they were equally cruel and irresponsible with their charges, and this led to many localized revolts in Judea and even regional issues for Rome to deal with. Now, if you're Roman, you worshiped a couple of things. One was Caesar, and the other was Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the power of the Roman Empire. If you didn't do your job to continue peace in Rome, if you didn't subdue your own region to be peaceful, the rest of Rome turned on you. And that's what happened in Rome to the Jewish viewed Christians and the Jews, both viewed as from Judea. So consequently, they suffered. When Nero began his persecution, do you know that nobody had sympathy on the Christians? They didn't. They wouldn't have. Because the Christians were from Judea in their mind, and they were part of the problem and not the solution. You could draw some historical lines, if you would like, even to modern times with this idea, looking at people from a certain homeland as the problem and not the solution. For example, Japanese people were put in camps in California after Pearl Harbor, those kinds of things. Why? Because they were a threat to life in America or because they were from Japan? 
modernity may not have matured as much as we often think. That's in many ways why Christians were ripe targets for the persecution in the early 60s AD that we see coming from this letter because junk is happening in Judea. And you remember it culminates with the destruction even of the temple. So if we sum it up, the mess in Judea, persecution is coloring the sunrise of these people. They see it coming on the horizon, the horizon over there. They see it coming. And Nero's epic and horrendous reputation confirms their suspicions. So our preacher's preaching 15 years after the Claudian persecution, right at the beginning of Nero's persecution. It's like a persecution sandwich. And he's hoping to admonish and encourage these ex-Jewish Christians who were rightly scared stiff by the prospects of their immediate future, he's hoping to encourage them to dedicate themselves further to the cause of Christ. These Christians have begun to allow the fear of circumstances and a situation to dictate their lives. They were shrinking back from each other. They were shrinking back from other congregations. They were drawing away from the world altogether. They were hated by Rome because of what was happening in Judea, and they were hated by Jews because they served a crucified Messiah. The preacher writes to these people that he loves, knowing in their future they will likely have the opportunity to stand before a governor and say, I do worship Christ, and I don't worship Caesar or die. These kinds of things were in their future. He knew that their temptation would be to pursue things like Judaism because it was a little bit more acceptable, had a few privileges with the Roman government. He knew that they would be pushed into wondering if God had abandoned them, if God had stopped caring for them. All they've known since becoming followers of Christ was difficulty, and now Nero's insane hands were on the reins of the chariot, and it was coming for them. And so the preacher does what we all need. He just preaches the supremacy and the wonder and the beauty of Christ being better than anything else. So how do we understand Hebrews? Well, it's by a preacher to these Christians in Rome that he loved, and ultimately it was about Christ. So why was Hebrews preached? Well, because these people needed to remember that Jesus was better. And because he's better, they have to be committed to him. There's several themes you could say that echo through the sermon. First, as we've mentioned, Jesus is better, or Jesus is supreme, or Jesus is final. There's no next messenger Jesus is the final word. There's no next message. The message about Jesus is sufficient and supreme. There's nothing beyond Jesus. And we see this thread of Jesus' supremacy woven through the entirety of this sermon. From supremacy over angels in the opening chapters, declaring that Jesus has created all things and that the Father declared him supreme. How could angels be over Christ when Christ is supreme over everything, and Christ is the creator. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is also better than Moses. Jesus is supreme over Moses. Jesus and Moses are compared and contrasted. Moses was an amazing prophet. Moses was an amazing protector of his people, but the preacher reminds the people, could you ever choose Jesus over Moses? No. 
Could you ever choose the one who relayed the word from stone over the one who created the stone and the word? The writer of the word or the actual incarnation of God? Jesus is always supreme over Moses. Jesus is supreme over Aaron in chapters really 4 through 10 and all that the priesthood is. The ministry of Jesus as high priest is beyond anything Aaron could have ever anticipated, let alone participated in. Jesus is supreme as the covenant which he inaugurated. And to go back to the old covenant as these ex-Jews were tempted to do is to lose the Messiah who secured the new covenant by his blood. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is supreme as the new and living way. That's what we see at the end of the book. In him we find all we need to live for him. That's, that's it. That's the whole letter. That's the end of the letter. Jesus over angels, Jesus over Moses, Jesus over Aaron, Jesus over the old covenant, Jesus over us. Keep us in him. Whatever it is, Jesus is better. And because Jesus is better, we can hold on to him. Along with the theme that Jesus is better, we're constantly reminded as the audience of this divine sermon that we're called to listen up. Verse one, God spoke to Israel over and over and over and over and then over and over. And what did Israel do? She had a history of not listening. From the beginning to the end, Hebrews is a summons to listen. It's a calling to hear. Don't be like the generations of the wilderness. Don't be like the generations prior to the exiles. Don't be like the generations of Jesus. Instead, listen. The author's reminding these people, listen to the word of God. Jesus is better than anything you've ever heard. Listen to him. Listen to him and receive what you need. The sacrifice you can't merit. The forgiveness that you can't earn. The rest you can never find. The home you always long for. Listen to him. Over and over, the preacher says, listen. Are you listening? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, the preacher is preaching. Are you listening? Chapter 5, verse 11, the preacher is warning. He says, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Listen. Chapter 6, verse 9, he's preaching again. Are you listening? Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 32, the preacher's preaching and he's running out of time. He says, what more shall I say? One of the central themes of Hebrews is the importance of listening to the voice of God through his word and his revelation, which is his son. In fact, one of the most profound verses of the book reminds us to listen. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25 says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking God is speaking. Are you listening? God is presented in the sermon as the loving father who's orchestrated salvific history to provide a savior. Because he's a holy God, he will not be trifled with. He's a consuming fire. He's one who lovingly disciplines his children. And he cares for his own into eternity. In Hebrews, the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Christ is never sugar-coated. This is no bait and switch. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, the preacher reminds the people that they haven't shed blood in pursuing Christ's likeness. Meaning what? The point is, Christ will hold on to you. So get ready for what's coming. When we listen to God's word, we will hold fast 
to Christ because God's word tells us he is holding fast to us. And so while much of Hebrews is a call to commitment, it's coupled with the beautiful truths of faith in the divine Son, our eternal and royal priest, who is the inauguration and foundation of our forever covenant of salvation with God. The themes of Hebrews, Jesus is better. We've got to hear and listen. We're called to be committed. And fourth, we're often warned. Warnings, 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 five times we run into warnings in the book of Hebrews. Warnings are everywhere. They're kind of obligatory. We see them all the time. I'm not really considering all the extra warnings that you find on pop cans and such. Like, you know, I understand that if I sniff carb cleaner, my brain cells will go on a permanent vacation. I understand that. But Hebrews doesn't have those kinds of warnings. Hebrews has the kind of warnings that deal with your eternal soul. Soul warnings often happen in two main settings. And I tried to figure out if I thought this because of my stage of life and vocation, but I think this is just genuinely what is true. Soul warnings often happen in two main settings. You know what they are? Preaching and parenting. Because parenting is kind of like preaching. But anyway, you can make them listen. Actually, that's not true. That's all I know about parenting. The soul warnings often happen in these two kinds of settings. We're often warned in church, and a huge part of parenting is warning. Why do I bring that up? Because warnings that deal with the soul, they have context. They have relationship. They have good and bad baggage. Good baggage makes us want to heed the warning. Bad baggage makes us want to reject the warning. But soul warnings have context. No, no other place is this need understood like in parenting and preaching. Like, if you walked into my house at a random time and heard some of my warnings to my children, you would not know what was happening. Like, no, you cannot use that knife on the kitchen table, you know? Like, what's happening in there? No, you can't cut fish apart in the living room. No, you know, you can't do these things. Well, warnings have context and relationship, which is why it's unhelpful at best and possibly even harmful to your heart to study warnings in Hebrews apart from the context of the relationship and the body of the message on the whole. So if you've been scared by the warning passages in Hebrews, you're not alone. But one thing I nearly universally hear neglected when people talk about the warning passages and their discussion of these particular passages is a reminder of what the preacher is trying to do with this message. He's trying to encourage the faithfulness of this congregation. He's trying to motivate them to steadfastness in Christ. He's calling them to a further commitment for Christ. He's seeking to show the beauty of Jesus over everything else. And one of the ways he does that is by showing the utter foolishness of turning from Christ. The warnings are to professing believers in a local congregation by a preacher who doesn't have knowledge, divine knowledge of their soul, but they're intended to inject steel into the spiritual spines of these believers. So don't forget the purpose of the warnings. And definitely don't ascribe your own purpose to the warnings. They're designed to motivate faithfulness. Fifth, Let's listen to the preacher in his own words describe why he's writing, possibly a theme you could find in his benediction, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. A beautiful 
benediction, a bow on the sermon, if you will. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The main point of this sermon is the keynote of the benediction. The preacher reminds us who God is, the one who raised our Savior from the dead, the Savior who died and shed his blood to establish the eternal covenant, not merely the new covenant, but the final covenant. He is the one who is equipping the hearers with everything they need in order to do God's will, and it is God's working in us, the equipping for the purpose of faithfulness and obedience that pleases God. So what's the preacher's point? Hear God, be equipped by God, be obedient to God, please God, praise God. And if you're there in Hebrews chapter 13, look six at this final theme of Hebrews that we've alluded to, chapter 13, verse 22, the sermon is a word of exhortation. I appeal to you, Chapter 13, verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. The preacher is appealing, he's urging, he's imploring, literally, get this, this is what the word is, exhorting. He is exhorting to bear with his word of exhortation. He doubles down on exhortation. The preacher says, I'm for you. Friend, I'm with you. Come on, friend. Hardships on the horizon. I get it. Hardships in the family photo album. I understand, but it's coming again. But you can do this because Jesus is doing this with you. The trials are going to be hot. They're going to be hard. But Jesus is better than anything. You can't do it on your own, but you must do it in him. And so in a modern colloquial, it's kind of like the preacher says, hang in there. That's what he's telling these people. Don't give up. Cling to Christ. Bear with my word of exhortation. To exhort is defined as to strongly encourage or to to urge someone to do something. Paraclesis, a term closely related to what our Savior called his Holy Spirit that he would send in the upper room. Paraclete. An exhortation is a calling upon an incitement, a persuasion, a cheering influence. Never forget the preacher to the Hebrews is on your side. He wants you to cling to Christ because he knows that you need to know that Jesus is better. And ultimately, the beauty of inspiration is that this exhortation for us to be committed to Christ comes from Christ himself. So why was Hebrews written? Well, let's go back to the beginning. Hebrews chapter 1, look at verse one, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The preacher points to the past, the direct revelation from God to those like Abraham, to the prophets like Moses. The preacher points to the miracles that spoke of the wonder and power of God in front of the likes of Pharaoh and before the city of Jericho. 
The preacher points back and says, God has spoken in a variety of ways and a variety of means to a variety of people. But, verse 2, there's a contrast. Something has changed. In these last days, the clock is running. He says, God has spoken to us by his son. Friend, there's a finality to the corpus of revelation we find in the person of Christ. And the simple message that we see this author, this preacher preaching to us is that Jesus is better. He is supreme. He is sufficient. He is all you can ever need. But the question is, once God has spoken, will you listen? Do you hear the words of this author preaching? Do you hear what he's saying to you? Friend, be committed to Christ because whatever you have your hands on, it's not as good as Jesus. So hang on to Jesus. And when you hold fast to him, he's hanging on to you and you can never get free because he will hold you by the eternal covenant that his blood purchased and you will always have a future of hope with him forever in every way. God has spoken. Will you listen? We'll come back next week and be reminded of the one through whom God has spoken. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Pray that as we try to orient our minds to the past and consider your revelation to these people, that we will realize it's your revelation to us. It's the truth of who our Savior is, the reality of what we need accomplished in his work by him, because of your power and your grace for your glory. Help us to find in the life and death and resurrection of our Savior all we need. Not a pathway to a better life, but a covenant for eternal life. Help us to find in him our every reason to be committed to him. Not because of those around us, but because of the one who saved us. And yet help us do it together to love and care for each other, to cherish one another as we pursue Christ and worshiping him, seeing that because he's better, this body is better than anything else because it's his body. Help us to love one another, encourage one another, and worship our Savior together. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.